Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. We have our original crew back today. I'm Jesse Vinercheck, and we have Marilyn. Hey, guys. And Elliot. Hey, everybody. Good to be back. Welcome back. Um, if you're enjoying this podcast, it'd be great if you could tell a friend, give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to. And you know, if you do not like it, email Elliot at Elliot at Bassetti.com or something like that, and he will deal with all your complaints. But it's actually not that far from my backup email. <laughs> so you might get it. It might work. Uh, <laughs> uh, Elliot and I are fresh off the boat getting back from St. George 70.3 North American Championships, and Maryland had a bunch of athletes that were up there as well. So we're going to start with a little, a little race recap. Elliot, from uh, from your point of view, I saw you on course a bunch of places. You were bebopping around all over, cheering like a madman. What uh, what'd you see out there? I, I saw um, a hard course. However, all of the things we talked about in our pre-race preview of how the weather can go bad, everything went right. There was no wind. Cloud cover came in. It was... Uh, if you were, if you got a lighter swim start, the wind picked up just enough. So there was a tiny bit of chop on the way back, but for the most part, um, if you're going to go back in the fall, good luck going as fast because the course is only going to get harder. Um, but of course, now that I say that maybe it'll get even better, but I honestly don't know how you could have had a nicer day for racing. I thought that was great. I thought the race was well put on. Um, you know, you didn't hear about many accidents or anything like that. And that's always good to hear. Um, and, and more or less, it was just great to see a lot of, a lot of really, really deep competition that we haven't had at an age group level in a year and a half. And that was cool. And then on the pro level, obviously there were some great races on the pro level as well. Yeah. It looked like, looked like both fields were stacked. A lot of people pretty excited to go fast. Uh, and on that, I, one thing I did hear from a lot of people is how the swim was, was pretty aggressive on all fronts. I, I don't know if you heard that from your athletes as well, but yes. I, I um, particularly the start of the women's pro race, but yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of people fighting for a little bit of water. And I think that's just people being eager to get back to racing, but that yeah. was definitely one thing that was pretty notable. And the swim and start also for the pros was quite crowded. It was like the old wildflower swim start where they kind of sandwiched, you know, in your case, 80 people in, in a spot that only had space for 20. Um, and that definitely makes it hard when everyone's Jones in the race and the gun goes off and got to be chaos pretty quick in those first couple hundred meters. And a very, fairly slippery platform, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, so I don't want to tell, I don't want to spend a whole, the whole podcast telling personal stories, but I was on the boat ramp and I got kind of pushed to the very front line. And then I got pushed off the edge of the rubber mat. So I'm standing on a concrete boat ramp with algae growing on it. And the gun went off and I went to leap forward and my feet just slipped. And basically I went face down right where I was standing and then had to try and start swimming from a complete standstill. And I had that moment of just like, OF, everyone else is around me. They're all pushing off. And basically at that moment, 50 guys, it felt like all just pummeled me into the ground. And then I had to like breaststroke for a minute and be like, okay, here we go. There's like literally nowhere to stroke because there are bodies everywhere. It felt like salmon, like swimming up river, just like bumping into each other. It was, it was insane. And yeah, from what I heard, the women's women's start was just about the same people just, just windmilling and going absolutely crazy. Ailey Chura did tell me she had quite a good time kicking everyone's butt in the swim. 
So yeah, somebody had fun. <laughs> One out of 70 had fun. There we go. <laughs> but yeah, the, I think the, the conditions were pretty ideal, that cloud cover. And when I was on the bus, I was talking to some people and I was like, yeah, you, you guys were super lucky because this cloud cover is going to keep like that pressure system pretty even. The wind isn't going to pick up and, and we had really good racing conditions. And then even on the run, it never got too hot. I heard a lot of people say it was hot. But I not want to tell them to what not compared to what it could have been. It was yeah, they, they don't know what hot is yeah, until they, they get there know. and that sun is beating down on them. Yeah. And that asphalt, I think one thing people don't those when you're in St. George, if you are heading there for world championships, the the top part of the course, it's dark asphalt and like you notice it. So even if it's 70 degrees out, if it, if the sun's out, it gets pretty rough. And you noticed even spectating up there, you're, you know, cloud cover, perfect cloud disappears. Oh, wow. It got real warm. So not quite a Hawaii level, but warm enough. Yeah. The, the one thing I will say that wasn't quite as fast as 2019 when they had the race is that without that wind, uh, since the course is kind of point to point, you do kind of get that tailwind for a lot of it. And I think we didn't have that strong tailwind. And so that did slow down the bike just a little bit. So you could get that tailwind back. Another thing that wind does is it does cool it down a little bit on the run. So we didn't have that cooling effect. So it was a little bit hotter and you didn't have that, that tailwind, of course, where the tailwind does come a little bit of headwind, but I think, yeah, for world champs, I would expect that wind to be back. I'd not expect there to be cloud cover. So I'd expect it to be like windier, probably a little bit hotter. Um, but yeah, besides that, it was a well put on race. Seems like Ironman did a good, as good of job as they could keeping it pretty safe. Aid stations seem super well run, even though they were like, um, you know, you had to grab your own stuff or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest recap my people said is that they, um, you know, it's just like so nice to be back out there racing. They were just all so excited to be back out there. And, and actually some of the changes they noticed with, like the pre days and stuff were they're like, I hope this stays forever. You know, things ran a lot smoother, a lot quicker, um, a lot more space, you know, those kinds of things. So yeah, I, I heard that too, that, you know, they did a really good job and everyone was just so happy to be back out racing and, and competing and getting to actually test their fitness and have fun with all their friends. So pretty cool stuff. Yeah. I mean, besides that guy eating potato chips at the beginning of the virtual uh, race briefing, everything else was pretty smooth. Oh, oh God. Mute yourself, folks. Come on. Only. <laughs> so that was uh, the North American 70.3 champs in two and a half weeks now, or I guess one and a half weeks when this comes out, we have Ironman Tulsa, the North American full distance championships aptly placed three weeks apart. So I know that the start list for the pro field has about 65 of the same 85 guys that are just sliding over from one race to the next, um, which is exciting for me to get to race my favorite 65 people again. It's always fun. Uh, but yeah, and I know that there are a lot of athletes in a similar position where they're racing three weeks apart. Maybe they're doing another race later on that's two weeks apart or whatever. They have like kind of some stacked races that double races in a row. Maybe it's not something they would choose to do. Maybe it's just the way their deferrals kind of rolled. And if they wanted to get a race in, this is how it's going to stack up is, is they kind of are forced to do a double, whether or not that's exactly their favorite idea or not. So we're going to talk a little bit about how to adequately prepare for doing back-to-back -back racing and what that kind of looks like 
what you do in the lead up, what you do between the two races and how you kind of manage that in order to have uh, 110% performance at two races close together. Let's just aim for a hundred. Cause I don't know <laughs> if you know, I know you taught math, but percentages a hundred's like the top. So. I like to, I like to outperform my my ability, so that's that's what I want people to be able to do. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna politely disagree, and we'll carry <laughs> on. All right. So I think that the lead up, just to kind of start fairly far back, has got to look a little different depending on the races you're getting ready for. But I guess just to use the example of getting ready for a seventy point three into an Ironman. I know personally, my training looked different. Um, I don't know if we want to delve into what I did or if, well, I think if, whether you're getting ready for a half Ironman a couple weeks later in Ironman, or you're getting ready for two Ironmans in a two or three or four week block, or you're getting ready for back-to-back halves, or even if you're getting ready for, you know, three Olympics in four weeks or something like that. I think the, the major thing I'm assuming you're about to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is when you kind of come into the taper for the first race, you better have most of the work done for the, the last race of the block, whether it's a two race block or a five race block, you know, you have to have everything more or less ready to go fitness wise for that last race. Um, particularly from an endurance standpoint, or else you're going to have trouble because there's just not a lot of time between the races to do anything other than recover and race. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I don't know. I, I have a little bit of a disagreement with you in terms of if, if it's four weeks of racing in a row, um, mm-hmm. because I think that's such a long period of time, but I definitely. Wait, you mean for like, if you did an Olympic four in a row? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like four weeks is quite a long time. And if you're not getting some pretty good training between four weeks of racing, there is risk of losing some fitness. Now we also talk about how much fitness is gained from each race and what that momentum carries into the next one. But I, I absolutely agree that the bulk of what you're doing and most important bulk of what you're doing is geared towards the, the second race or the last race you're doing. However, I really think there has to be a good discussion about what the taper looks like, because if you, if someone says, I'm going to start tapering, a long ways out for that first race, by the time they get to the second race, you know, if it's a, a three week period in between, that would be a normal sharpening period anyways. And you gain fitness from the first race, but every athlete of how they taper and then how they recover from the race, those are the really important things and very individualized things between athletes, um, that, that I've noticed. And I've, I've bridged a lot of athletes between races. I actually have a lot of people race a half three, four weeks before not on even purpose. on purpose, just because yeah. it's like, there's so much fitness gained from racing. And then, you know, depending on the athlete, like, I'm sure we're going to dive into real specifics of what it looks like in those three, four weeks or two weeks in between into their, their second race. So, um, there's a lot of, a lot of things to cover here for sure. So Jesse, what did, what did you change specifically knowing that you had this half three weeks out? Um, well, first of all, I want to say that I find that three to four weeks to be like, like my, my least favorite, because I have to keep training. If it's two weeks, I can basically float it. Like I tend to hold on to fitness decently well, so I can kind of float it and yeah, I'll, I'll keep training, but
but I don't have to worry so much, but like once I get to three weeks or if I get to four weeks then it's like, okay, I need to have like a block of training in the middle there. And that's, um, that can be hard. And so I think that's, you know, you need to kind of consider if you can set up your schedule the way you want to, I think you need to consider that as far as like what you like to do and how, how that can work based on like how well you seem to hold on to fitness. Um, because I know I've seen athletes that are like, Oh, it's three weeks. I can just like, I can mail it in. I'm ready. And then all of a sudden they get to that second race and they didn't do enough in those three weeks. And they're like, Oh, I don't feel like racing. I haven't done any training in the last three weeks. So I think, yeah, that can be each time frame has its own kind of set of challenges, but I do personally, I think three weeks is kind of hard, which is what I'm in the middle of right now. All right. I do think one thing that's interesting about what you're saying, I think the key point there is knowing how well you hold on to fitness. Um, we've talked about this before in, in other podcasts is that because I, I actually have seen some pretty um, amazing performances from athletes that they, they literally don't really do anything. And you would think like four weeks, there's no way you're going to lose, you know, three, four weeks, you're going to lose way too much fitness. If you just spend the whole time recovering and taking it over. Um, and then they, you're right. You know, they get into that second one. They're like, Oh boy, I'm just not in shape anymore. But I have actually seen from one athlete in particular that it was like a long period of time. They built a huge base of fitness all year and, and got a lot of work done. And then just basically rested their way through these races. And by the time they got to the last one, they, they were just on fire and they had like lifetime best performances. So I think the key thing to notice there is what athletes first thing to identify when you're thinking about these training blocks of back-to-back races. So the taper and the training block before the taper, then the training block in between. I think the main things to the very, very first thing that you want to identify is how well do I hold on to fitness and how much work does it take me to build that fitness? And then, you know, the taper and recovery in between. So I just want to ask a question and maybe clarify. Um, when you guys are saying fitness to me, this all makes sense. If you're basically talking about like endurance, right? Like how well you hang on to endurance in that term in terms of fitness and not so much like the speed and sharpening. Cause we're, we're talking about a half Ironman into an Ironman and, and a lot of the examples I've seen firsthand or people I've coached, it's you build that endurance. And if they can't hang on to that endurance for th- two, three weeks, then you might have trouble racing too close to the race. But if you hold on to the endurance really well, all of a the sudden there's a bunch of people I know who purposely raced a half three weeks out and an Olympic two weeks out. And then they took that final weekend, not racing, but they held on to endurance really well. And then they did exactly what you said. And so is that what you meant by that or no? Yeah, exactly. Because obviously the race provides an element of building the intensity, right. And you're just staying sharp in between, which is going to be recovery and intensity. And, um, so it's exactly like if you, if you're able to hold on to that ability to, to go for a long time at a medium effort in between, then you really are just staying that, you know, whatever fitness you gained from the race and then stay in a sharpening phase into the second one. Yeah. And and but if you have an athlete that doesn't hold on to that endurance and they start to, you know, they start to fall away, then there has to be some carefully placed, pretty long sessions, um, in between. One thing I wanted to kind of circle back to before we get into that specific lead up for that first race is something Marilyn talked about, about that consistency in training leading up to your race block, however many races it is. And I think that's, 
one of the key takeaways here. And, and when I say I hold on to fitness or I hold on to endurance, I think part of that is because I, I do a fair amount of consistent work leading up to that, that allows me to hold on to that endurance. And so I think that's one piece where like, based on your time that you can spend training where you might be a little bit like lacking in that ability to hold on to endurance because you might have some decent consistency, but if your volume is like overall a little bit lower, I think that makes it harder to kind of like stretch that out for three races in a row or, or races that are a little bit further apart. But if you have uh, deep fitness from doing a big block of consistent training that kind of allows you to, to kind of stretch that out and hold on to that endurance for a long time. Cause you, you know, if you've done, yeah, a lot of like bigger sessions, then that'll stay with you for a while. But if you've, if you're building for your first Ironman and you've done like one hundred mile ride, that that is not going to be the thing that's going to carry you for a four week block until like between a half Ironman and, you know, an Ironman four weeks later or something. Yeah. Cause at that point, you're also just getting more tired from the half Ironman. Right. I was just going to ask you that Jesse, if you wouldn't mind being like real specific for everyone listening of what the difference between, um, big training that you're going to be able to hold on to versus, um, training that looks like you would have to just keep backing it up in between. Cause it's not necessarily enough to create that huge well of fitness that will carry you a little bit longer. So some people, because we're being vague here in those numbers, I'd like to get more specific in them because people might have an idea of, well, this is big to me. And you're, when you're saying that you're thinking, well, the huge well of fitness that's going to carry me in the second race, it's, it's big. What does that look like to you? And like, and maybe that looks different for different athletes, but let's, let's throw some numbers out there and some exacts so people can pull from that. I'm going to cut in. Because I, there's what, I don't know what Jesse's about to say, but I know in his heart of hearts, if he doesn't have at least eight weeks of two long rides a week, he would not be comfortable saying. What's two long rides though? What's long ride? Oh, an absolute minimum of 90 miles, but probably more like a hundred, 110, maybe 120, maybe 130, occasionally 140 and every once in a while, 160. So you're hearing those numbers and most everyone is like, what the hell? He d- and it was like, yeah, that, the, the, uh, Jesse rides his bike a lot. And if you knew how fast he was 10 years ago versus now, you'd be like, oh, that makes sense. He got a lot faster. But anyways, the point is that even if it was a 60 mile ride and it took you four hours, I think like, that's it, like probably like if we're talking about this multiple race block, personally, I think an, an absolute minimum of kind of like 10 longer rides. And that would have to be at least four plus hours. And often if you're doing an Ironman and there's a half Ironman on the way, then all of a sudden it kind of really turns into a minimum of 10 rides of four and a half hours. Um, Jesse, since I cut you off and put words in your mouth. No, I mean, that was fairly accurate. Um, I think, so I had a pretty good block going into challenge Miami. And then I had, I think six weeks between those two races and I had basically five weeks where I don't remember the exact numbers and there, you know, there's a little bit up and down in there, but let's say I was, I was riding a little bit over like 300 ish in the low three hundreds and then running in the low fifties for five weeks straight. For the listener, we know that you're not going to do that many miles probably. That's okay. But I mean, just for example, that's what I was doing. And like, I don't, I don't work a a nine to five, so I'm able to do that. And to kind of, 
reiterate what Elliot said is usually that breaks out into two pretty long rides, you know, I'd say four to six and a half hours, and then at least one long run and then one like medium long run of, you know, let's say like medium long run being like 14, 15 long run being 17 to 20. Um, and so I did that for like five weeks leading in. So it's basically what I would call that like pretty full on Ironman training leading into St. George because number one, I know it's a tough course, so I don't need to have as, as much like absolute speed as I might on a flatter, faster 70.3, but I also integrated a little bit more intensity in this training block, knowing that I was going to race a faster half or a, a half before the Ironman. So I, you know, I, I backed off the volume ever so slightly, or just included a little bit more intensity in some of those sessions to make sure I was sharp enough to race a 70.3 while I was basically training with all eyes on Tulsa. And then what I did was basically a drop taper where I trained pretty hard, basically all, all the way up until like 10 days out, started pulling out a couple of sessions weekend before wasn't quite as hard or quite as long. I mean, I think I rode like three and a half hours the weekend before, as opposed to five hours and then started backing off even further in that last week leading in, which you kind of have to with travel and all that. That's interesting that you call 10 days a drop taper. Well, I guess like that part isn't exactly the drop taper, but I still rode like, um, I would call like five days more of a drop taper, I guess. But even that weekend was, was like, I say it was a little shorter, but it was still like three and a half hours, which was the shootout, um, and then run off and then, you know, a decently long run that weekend. So that was like a little Your bit less intensity was still there, but you didn't have quite as much volume. Right. Yep. Um, I, yeah. So the, the gist of that is, is essentially you need to cut, like you were only comfortable doing that because you had all your volume. And if you're going to do, um, your first Ironman ever, right. And maybe you've only done, you know, you're building to a single hundred mile, or maybe you do one 110 or 15 mile ride before the race. That's very common. That's probably most people in the race. Then that half Ironman maybe needs to be a bit further out from the race if you can, because you're using it as a building tool. And then you also want to have a lot of your longer rides and runs done. Maybe not all of them, but most of them. Is that, would you guys both agree with that? I think it depends on where those two races are staggered, right? Like if you are spreading it out to like six weeks, then mm -hmm. it's that building tool. And then you still have some time after, right? But if you're going to put them like two or three weeks, then yeah, you want to be basically Ironman fit before that 70.3. Yeah. I guess what I'm, I guess my point I'm trying to skirt around without making anybody feel bad is, uh, don't do a half Ironman two or three weeks out of your first Ironman. If you don't do a lot of long rides it might get you into trouble. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah. I mean, in a perfect world when it's two, three weeks apart, in my mind, um, the athlete, you know, does a, a drop, a drop taper into that first one. Like we've outlined, you know, you have a really good base. Most of your homework's done. You do somewhat of a drop taper into that first one, you know, whether it be five days or a little bit longer, like you suggested. Um, and then, you know, in between, hopefully the fitness is high enough that you see the athlete recover within three to five days. And then they're pretty much back to some kind of aerobic work 
that that weekend, like that next weekend. So the intensity is down, but maybe you might be touching on a bit of volume. And when I say touching on it, you might get like a real easy four hour ride in. Uh, you're not fully recovered from the effort of the half yet, but if you, but you're able to roll around for like four hours and, and start to do something. Um, and then you might get into a, a good 10 day block of training. Um, now what that looks like, depending on, like I said, with an athlete, you know, if they're, if they lose fitness really fast, that ability to hold endurance, or if they hold on to endurance really well, and it's a 10 day sharpening period, that's just fine. And then we start to taper, taper down into the, into the Ironman. So I think, you know, floating the training for three, three weeks is too long. And if you've done enough work into that first race and done the drop taper, right. Ideally your athletes pretty recovered by the next weekend. So like I say, a mistake people will make is right after that first half Ironman, they feel pretty good. They're, they're pretty pumped from the race and more like emotionally and like hormonally, they're pretty like excited and jacked. And they'll be like, I feel amazing. And they start training a little bit too hard too quickly. And I, I really advocate that, that, you know, the days right after the race, that first like 72 hours, take it super easy up to five days, keep it pretty chill, really, really recover. And then by the weekend back, get back to some kind of aerobic work that's, you know, decent, but not, not super hard yet. Cause the muscle tissue might not be fully repaired from the intensity of the race, especially a course like St. George, where there's a long downhill run it might be still a bit beat up and, and adding just some intensity might just rip you to shreds a little bit more, but you can certainly touch on that endurance just a little bit. And then you, then you're ready to do like, based on that, how the athlete looks and how they've recovered, you can look at, Hey, can we do, what do we need for these next 10 days to be you know, firing on all cylinders and, and ready to go into that Ironman. And does it look like, you know, we're going to be able to, to taper down and, and be in pretty good shape by the time we get there. I think that's, um, I've used that several times on a lot of different athletes. And, and if you, I feel like if you've been able to do all of those just right, that, that consistently has worked well. Of course, there's exceptions to every rule, but that consistently has worked well in, in my experience. So let me, Elliot, we're going to jump in on that. Okay, I was going to fire a question out here. So this is uh, something I've seen with with athletes that you you do a race and something doesn't go quite right. If you have three weeks, is there enough time to address a weakness, or do you just say we've got to just kind of roll it? Like we only have three weeks, so we're just going to focus on the race and the best we can. Um, yeah, I I think it depends on what the weaknesses if it's just like if it's like bad fueling or bad pacing then there's definitely enough time and a lot of it is going to be the athlete like coming to grips with what they have to specifically change in the race and then being confident enough to be willing to make that change when it happens or to gain the skill like if you're doing t1 and you jump on your bike and you crash right <laughs> three weeks is enough time to fix that or if you didn't know where the course went, you know, like, oh, well, then you can figure that out, um, fueling and all that stuff. But if it's straight, like, I want to hold X watts and now I can't, well, <laughs> too bad. You're just going to have to adjust your your attitude and your goals. Um, but I think also, like, maybe you're – so if somebody's reaching for 10 and they found out that, oh, they, they ended up at 6 – but probably they're capable of eight because they, they went out pacing way too hard. They were pacing for 10. They blew up to six. Well, then eight's still feasible. And I think the hardest part about that is like 
just the mentality of, of being like, okay, well, this is where I'm at. How can I actually get that eight and realize that's actually would be great because it's still better than six. Right. So, so you can do, you can do a lot with like race execution. And I think the first race is often a good, a good learning tool for whatever that race execution is, whether it's pacing or, you know, like even something like cadence on the bike, how that affects everything. So you can learn a lot on how you execute that first race and ideally like come up with some slightly better strategies, especially when that's fresh in your mind for the next race. But as far as like fitness in a single sport, you think you're kind of like stuck with what you got going into the first one. Oh, Marilyn shaking her head. No, let's go Marilyn. Yeah. I, lo I love this conversation because I do slightly disagree. I agree somewhat with some athletes, but I have actually seen where there is a bump in fitness for the athlete from the first race, particularly in a situation like right now where people haven't raced for a really long time. So someone could go into St. George with a certain amount of fitness, do a drop taper, actually gain some fitness from the race, recover within three, three to five days, um, and get, get some work done that actually from the race, they actually lifted what they're able to do and do a handful of sessions. It might only be three to five sessions, that, and that's across the board, of course, with swim, bike, and run, not, not three to five of each, but three to five set key sessions within that 10 days where you actually see their fitness lift a little bit from the, from the recovery, race intensity, gain some fitness there, little recovery, training block, and all of a sudden things are, it's marginal, but it is an increase in, um, in, in ability and, and fitness to, to take into that second race. So I've, I've actually seen that more often than not. I haven't, I haven't ever just seen someone completely settle in between unless they're absolutely, I, I don't know. I mean, even, even people who, who are absolutely at their best and peak per, peak performance for the first one, and then just are floating the, the fitness into the second one, I still see a little bit of a bump from the actual first race itself that they carry into the second one and the performance can be better. So, um, I don't know. That's just, yeah, I think I don't just, I guess the marginable aspect, I was, I was thinking more of like a major oh, some yeah. sort of change, yeah. but yeah, sure. Especially with three weeks, but I was also thinking like, if it's one or two weeks, I guess, Jesse was your question originally three weeks. Yeah. Folks, that's what I was folks, thinking. We have backpedaling. We have backpedaling. <laughs> We're talking about, I thought we were talking about the three weeks because we're talking about, yeah, like yeah, 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 no, that, yeah. And you're, I, I guess, and I, I'm just thinking like, are you going to make any sort of significant change, right? If somebody wants to run seven minute pace, but they're running seven twenties, like, no, you're not going to drop 20 seconds a mile, but you might drop five and that right. would be pushing it. Um, and I think from, yeah. So like, but in my head, it'd be pretty small. Whereas the tactical execution, that stuff can be night and day. Um, yeah. And, and I think if you're, if you're hoping for anything more than like a half percent gain, you know, then you're probably kind of full of it. So I guess that's why I'm kind of like, yeah, sure. A half percent, but that's also kind of like a little bit negligible. Um, I'm only going to backpedal like half a step and then I'll leave it there. <laughs> I definitely um, think the one to two weeks you're, you're just, you're just floating between the two. What you've got is what you've got. Yeah. Um, but I do think three weeks there is enough and it's three weeks is a tricky one, but it's, um, but I definitely think there's some room there, some wiggle room. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think three weeks, you can definitely make some gains. I think it's easier on the swim and the bike and it's easier to see that because the run is a tricky one to know 
if it's run fitness or like how that execution went, that all really goes into affecting the run. And then with, with only three weeks, I feel like it is a little bit harder to squeeze in a, a ton of quality run sessions to, and make sure you're recovered. But I do think if you feel like the deficit is in the other two, you can do a few things where like you're kind of backing up sessions where you're doing like a couple of big swims or a couple of big rides back to back and do like a little, a little mini training block where you can really kind of take one of those two and use the race fitness, like Marilyn said, and then kind of bump it up to the next level and maybe get a couple of percent gain and then be able to go a little bit better. And maybe some athletes who look prettier on the run than I do can, can do that with a run. But I know I, I struggle with, with gaining a ton of run fitness pretty close together. Yeah. The run, the run's tricky because it takes long, definitely takes longer to recover, but also the worst thing you could do between the two races is get injured. Right. So all of this is like with an aspect, so only do as much as what's going to, you know, (laughs) rule number one, don't get injured between the two races. (laughs) Don't get sick between the two races. Don't get heat exhaustion between the two races, like those kinds of things. Um, make, make sure you're checking off those things really. Was was that a reference to our salty ride yesterday? (laughs) Right, I was salty. You were not salty. You're fit enough to not be salty. (laughs) Um, so speaking of which, if, if you're going to do back-to-back half Ironmans, I know plenty of people have tons of rollovers of, of half Ironmans. And a lot of people are just looking to race more, whether that's a bunch of sprints, Olympics, like three and four weeks or doing what I did back in the day, which was like, I think at one point I did three half Ironmans in an Olympic in 20 days. That's kind of a, a bit too much. Um, I think it, whatever I I've done 10 races in 11 weekends, a couple of times. Um, nice. yeah, <laughs> I used to live in a Bronco and just drive around racing anyways. Um, but, uh, point being is how do you think the, how would you lead in differently? for those kind of things versus what we were just talking about where you're ultimately you're building towards an Ironman, right? So a half Ironman, like you don't really need 20, you know, hundred plus mile rides to be ready to do two good half Ironmans. Um, and if you're doing just sprints and Olympics, you know, you might not need any hundred mile rides if you're doing it right. So thoughts on the lead in, and then also in the, we'll cover the in between of those races. Yeah, Jesse, you go. Um, all right, throwing me out here. Here we go. Well, you, looked, you looked like you were edging towards your microphone, <laughs> like you had a lot to say. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think when, especially when you're setting yourself up for a race block where you're racing week after week after week, it's a, it's a different beast than knowing you'll have like a little bit of gap there. And I think the biggest thing is something we kind of already talked about, but it's having that, that deep endurance, that deep fitness going into that first race that allows you to do very little between all those races and have that fitness float, get a little bit of bump from each race, but basically do like 10 weeks or however many weeks in a row where, or even if it's just two weeks in a row where I think most people listening to this are probably thinking two weeks in a row or three races in four weekends. That's a normal person. All right. So we'll go, we'll go. I'd like two to three races in that time. You do, do want to have enough fitness to like float it as much as you can, because if you're racing back-to-back weekends and assuming you have a day job in between, like there's travel, there's work, you don't, you're not going to have a lot of room in there to throw other stresses at you when that kind of situation, if you're racing back-to-back or or like three races fairly close together. So I think you want to be fit enough ahead of time to kind of just roll through those. So I think 
I mean, one of the things I like to do is have like a, a long ride, maybe with a short runoff that's like almost as long or as long as your event. So if you're getting ready for a half Ironman, I would say, yeah, like you want to have maybe a couple of five hour rides or a couple of like four ish hour rides with like a short runoff. And you do that a few times so that you can kind of develop that deeper endurance and your heart is beat decently hard for the race length a few times before you actually get to that first race. Oh, and you're, yeah, yeah. You're saying like, okay, if you're going to do a half and your race is four five, six hours, you want to make sure you've, you've been working out for four five, six hours. You don't have to do a whole half Ironman, but that's where having done an 80 mile ride in prep for a half is great. If you're going to do them back to back because of that exact point. Right. That having yeah. that, that deep endurance helps you kind of float that. And I, I would definitely not recommend for most people doing a half Ironman in training. I would say make it more bike heavy. Like you're saying, like an 80 mile ride. Um, to kind of save some of the impact on your legs. But then again, getting your, your aerobic system firing for that same duration. I think that's, um, would Jesse, have you, have you done halves back to back? I know I've done it a few times and I've done it poorly and well, but I've, I've done it a few times. Um, and I've also done it poorly and well, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't done it. I've only done it like twice. I think actually racing back to back halves and yeah, it's just, I, I think, Oh, sorry. I was going to say for me that I think it's always just been the, the travel aspect is, is the hardest piece. Um, yeah. I think if you, if you have any intentions of doing races back to back one, I'm just going to tell you like what not to do one, you know, like post race, you need to get a lot of sleep, which means you might have to make the travel kind of funky. If you need to, you know, if part of your trip involves leaving right away, that could be rough. Um, the other thing is if your race is on a Sunday and then your next race is on a Saturday, you can do that. But five days of recovery between is a heck of a lot less than if you raced a Saturday to a Sunday where you have seven days and those two extra days are massive. And I think, you know, even for the people I've coached and me personally, I can tell you like five days apart was the worst time ever. Whereas seven days apart feels like glorious. Um, but the, the other big things is like, you kind of become a stage racer just with a week apart and like everything post race has to be dialed. Like you have to have your nutrition ready. You have to get off your feet and get out of the sun. You know, you have to kind of like get fuel in you and then get as much sleep as you can multiple days in a row. You know, like I definitely remember I maybe took a few too many shots of things with vodka in it after a race one time. And like, it could not have went worse a week later. And it was just like, Oh, you did all of the things wrong. You didn't sleep. You weren't hydrated. And that's just not going to work out because a week isn't a long enough time in between half Ironmans, no matter how high your fitness is. I will say in between like an example like that, where it's, it's so close together. Um, a mistake I'll see people make is they don't get moving quickly enough. Um, that's why, I mean, if you watch, you, just, you mentioned, um, you know, stage, stage race, stage racing, you know, if, people don't realize like in those rest days in between long stage races or back-to-backs type stage races, there's actually like all you want to do, all your body wants to do is, is like just shut down and, and your brain is going to tell you, I just need to sit on the couch and do nothing in between. And that is a huge mistake. Now, obviously you're not going to be gaining any fitness or doing a bunch of intensity or actually doing any sessions, but you need to get moving, um, as quickly as possible. Like I would say, you know, even if, 
if you do some kind of hard race and you've got that evening to just go to a pool and kick for 200 meters and just like flesh out your legs. And then the next morning, wake up and do a little spin swim. You can swim a lot, you know, you can swim a lot and just real easy backstroke. I even, you know, longer swims and just keep the body moving because you will, your body will want to shut down. And, and, um, and then that can leave you feeling really sticky and flat for the second one when they're that close. So you're not looking to actually do any more damage to your body, but you've got to keep it moving. That's a, that's a really, really important, especially for traveling. I mean, traveling, you're going to get, you know, you want to get the swelling out as much as possible. You want to keep moving. You want to, um, and you're saying moving, not training for, as a reason, like walking works. You know, like spinning yeah, well, the big bike. You can like, swim as much as you can. 20 minute little jog, short frequency, nothing long, nothing mm-hmm. hard, but moving a lot and often. Yeah. Like walking, go for a walk. Super in the low intensity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you're going to want to just be like, like you said, like, screw it. I'm just going to sit on the couch and eat. And then whatever fitness I had, I'll had, I'll carry it over and I'll, you know, but your body will shut, the system will shut down and your legs will lock up. And so you, you really want to you really want to get, think I need to get the swelling out and I need to get my body moving and, and watch that engine doesn't shut down. And if you can keep it moving and get it all flushed out, and then you just the day before just touch on opening up a little bit again, um, and, and know that your, your body's ready and firing and it might feel pretty flat when you do those, but by race day, you'll be, you'll be back at it and feeling good. And those are a little like short openers. I like to describe my athletes. Imagine like you see the race cars on a racetrack and they're like blowing out the engine a little bit, same kind of thing the day before a race. So that's been uh, something that I've done with people and, and it's worked really well when they're that close together. Yeah. And, and I think, um, depending on the person, some people respond really, really well to the day before, like you were talking about. And I know there's a few people I've coached that was like, okay, well, if you race on Sunday, maybe Friday's the day you do, you know, but you already had four days easy and then you do a few pickups, then you get another day and then you're after the races again. Um, and then if you're doing a ton of race, like, let's say you are doing three races and four, like, eventually you need to ask yourself, um, am I doing something aerobic midweek? But usually if you're racing multiple times, your longest race is going to be an Olympic. So about two hours and all of a sudden, like you still need all that endurance coming in, like Jesse was talking about, but it's not quite as paramount and it lasts for, I would say the percentage of people who can hold the endurance for an Olympic for a month is a heck of a lot more than the people who can hold the endurance for an Ironman. I don't know if you guys would agree with that, but. Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. I would definitely agree. Um, I also just to echo something you guys just said in a different way, in case people didn't understand it exactly when you said it, I'll say the same thing. Nice. I I think that, uh, even thinking about your feeling towards the end of the race, it can be pretty important. Whereas if it's like the last race of the year and you're running down the last 5k, maybe you don't need anything, but if you know you're racing a week later, like it, it doesn't sound like it makes a big difference, but if you like take an extra gel or hit a few extra cups of Gatorade and then right after the race, you are like really on that. I think all those things help you recover so much more than people give them credit for like that, that second half of the race and then what you do immediately after and what you continue to do later on and the post-race setup, but that's But that's a great point for even with training. Like how many times have you had an athlete do a workout? Like this happens to me literally almost every day where you look at their fueling and you say, 
that fueling was optimal for that workout. Sure. But for the preparation for the next workout, you could have used an extra hundred or two calories. And right. for the race, it's not something you really think about because the race, there's a finish line and then you're done. But in these multiple races, you're, you're, you're not done. Down. Yeah. You're not done. That's, that's a very good point. And I also, I totally agree with like the evening swim or e evening spin. If you can jump on your bike and like, if it's, if there's no pool or whatever, and you can just roll around, put it in the little ring and like even, yeah, do, just staying active, I think is so important. I think that one of the times I had success on this was like, it was an Ironman into a 70.3, but I did just that. I, I did a really good job staying moving more just because I had to, but it ended up working really well in my favor. And that by like Wednesday between the races, I was like, I actually feel way better than I thought I would. And so, um, yeah, turn, I was able to turn around and race pretty well. How are you guys feeling? Pretty good. <laughs> Get some blank stares. We feel, we feel pretty good on this one. Well, I was just looking through the notes. Um, and I, th I think we, covered everything that you wanted to tell what we both we all wanted to touch on when one thing i have in my notes is kind of circled is that i think that consistency leading into a race is really important i think once you get in that block of time between the races it's much less important you want to touch on a few things but being like oh i'm used to swimming like x number of sessions a week and i'm used to doing i think that you can throw that out the window the three weeks in between races you can say okay i want to hit a few key sessions kind of like you guys were saying, but like that consistency or frequency that you're used to, whatever it is like that, those rules of thumb are no longer important because you've done that work already. And right now you're just trying to make sure you are sharp and ready to go. And yes, you need to have some key sessions to get ready, but like, you don't need to, like I was saying, I was running like 50 miles a week or whatever in my training blocks. I'm like, well, in these three weeks between I am not worried about that at all anymore. I'm going to hit a few key runs and not worry about as many of those maintenance runs and say, okay, I'm doing the key sessions, but I'm staying a little bit fresher. I'm keeping that cumulative fatigue low because I've got a race again soon. That, that was one of, I don't know, the bigger takeaways, I would say. Yeah, recover. Oh, sorry. No, I was, I was just saying that's really good for sure. Recovery, but your consistency of recovery is what becomes most important, essentially. Yeah, that flip from consistency of sessions to consistency of recovery. I like yeah, that. You, you want that dip of like that big fatigue is as minimized as possible because you already gave yourself a huge chunk of fatigue with one, the training, but also then the race itself before you head to the next race. And I will recommend for the people that feel like they need to do a little bit more in between um, to put that focus in the water. Uh, especially if you don't have a swim background. I mean that, you know, if you're going to spend a lot of time doing something in between and you're taking Jesse's rule of thumb, which I think is a really good one. And I think that's like, that's going to get you feeling great for the second race, but some athletes might counter that with, well, I've got to do more in between. I don't, you know, I, I really need to move a lot more. I just recommend put that, put that energy into the water and that's where you're going to get the most, um, you can, you can still build some good aerobic fitness in the water, keep the feel for the water and it's not going to beat you up as much. So that would be a place I'd put some focus in between the two. It's a good, safe place. Certainly don't do a bunch of four hundreds on the track Don't do that. or, and probably stop deadlifting. Oh so. my gosh. That's a whole nother conversation. You shouldn't be doing that anyways. <laughs> yeah, all right. That's a different topic though. <laughs> yeah. 
Awesome. Well, uh, thank you guys. I, I appreciate you spending the afternoon with me. Yeah, it was good. Awesome. Thanks guys. That was fun. Thanks everyone.